Chapters 30 and 31 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 30 Arrested. About twelve miles from Zane, we saw from a ridge a snake like line of riders crossing the valley which detachment we met half an hour later on the shore of a deep, swampy stream. The group consisted of Mongols, Buryats, and Tibetans armed with Russian rifles. At the head of the column were two men, one of whom in a huge black astrakhan and black felt cape with red Caucasian cowl on his shoulders blocked my road, and in a coarse, harsh voice demanded of me, "'Who are you, where are you from, and where are you going?' I gave also a laconic answer. They then said that they were a detachment of troops from Baron Ungern, under the command of Captain Vandaloff. "'I am Captain Bezradnov, military judge.' Suddenly he laughed loudly. His insolent, stupid face did not please me, and bowing to the officers, I ordered my riders to move. "'Oh, no!' he remonstrated, as he blocked the road again. "'I cannot allow you to go farther.' I want to have a long and serious conversation with you, and you will have to come back to Zane for it. I protested and called attention to the letter of Colonel Casagrandi, only to hear Besradnov answer with coldness, This letter is a matter of Colonel Casagrandi's, and to bring you back to Zane and talk with you is my affair. Now give me your weapon. But I could not yield to this demand, even though death were threatened. Listen. I said. Tell me frankly, is yours really a detachment fighting against the Bolsheviki, or is it a red contingent? No, I assure you, replied the Buryat officer, Vandaloff, approaching me. We have already been fighting the Bolsheviki for three years. Then I cannot hand you my weapon, I calmly replied. I brought it from Soviet Siberia, have had many fights with this faithful weapon, and now I am to be disarmed by white officers. It is an offence that I cannot allow. With these I threw my rifle and my Mauser into the stream. The officers were confused. Bezradnov turned red with anger. I freed you and myself from humiliation, I explained. Bezradnov in silence turned his horse. The whole detachment of three hundred men passed immediately before me, and only the last two riders stopped, ordered my Mongols to turn my cart round, and then fell in behind my little group. So I was arrested. One of the horsemen behind me was a Russian, and he told me that Bezradnov carried with him many death decrees. I was sure that mine was among them. Stupid! Very stupid! What was the use of fighting one's way through red detachments, of being frozen and hungry, and almost perishing in Tibet, only to die from a bullet of one of Bezradnov's Mongols. For such a pleasure it was not worth while to travel so long and so far. In every Siberian Cheka I could have had this end so joyfully accorded me. When we arrived at Zain Shabi, my luggage was examined, and Bezradnov began to question me in minutest detail about the events in Uliasitai. We talked about three hours during which I tried to defend all the officers of Uliasitai, maintaining that one must not trust only the reports of Domojirov. When our conversation was finished, 
the captain stood up and offered his apologies for detaining me in my journey. Afterwards he presented me a fine mauser with silver mountings on the handle, and said, "'Your pride greatly pleased me. I beg you to receive this weapon as a memento of me.' The following morning I set out anew from Zain Shabi, having in my pocket the laissez-passer of Bezrodnov for his outposts. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 Travelling by Urga Once more we travelled along the now-known places, the mountain from which I espied the detachment of Bezrodnov, the stream into which I had thrown my weapon, and soon all this lay behind us. At the first Urtan we were disappointed because we did not find horses there. In the Yurtas were only the host with two of his sons. I showed him my document, and he exclaimed, "'Noyan has the right of Urga! Horses will be brought very soon!' He jumped into his saddle, took two of my Mongols with him, providing them and himself with long thin poles, four or five metres in length, and fitted at the end with a loop of rope, and galloped away. My cart moved behind them. We left the road, crossed the plain for an hour, and came upon a big herd of horses grazing there. The Mongol began to catch a quota of them for us with his pole and noose, or urga, when out of the mountains nearby came galloping the owners of the herds. When the old Mongol showed my papers to them, they submissively acquiesced and substituted four of their men for those who had come with me thus far. In this manner the Mongols travel, not along the Urtan or station road, but directly from one herd to another, where the fresh horses are caught and saddled, and the new owners substituted for those of the last herd. All the Mongols so affected by the right of Urga tried to finish their task as rapidly as possible, and gallop like mad for the nearest herd in your general direction of travel, to turn over their task to their neighbour. Any traveller having this right of Urga can catch horses himself, and, if there are no owners, can force the former ones to carry on and leave the animals in the next herd he requisitions. But this happens very rarely, because the Mongol never likes to seek out his animals in another's herd, as it always gives so many chances for controversy. It was from this custom, according to one explanation, that the town of Urga took its name among outsiders. By the Mongols themselves it was always referred to as Takure, the great monastery. The reason the Buryats and Russians, who were the first to trade into this region, called it Urga, was because it was the principal destination of all the trading expeditions which crossed the plains by this old method or right of travel. A second explanation is that the town lies in a loop, whose sides are formed by three mountain ridges, along one of which the river Tola runs like the pole or stick of the familiar Urga of the plains. Thanks to this unique ticket of Urga, I crossed quite untravelled sections of Mongolia for about two hundred miles. It gave me the welcome opportunity to observe the fauna of this part of the country. I saw many huge herds of Mongolian antelopes, running from five to six thousand, many groups of bighorns, wapiti, and karbaga antelopes. Sometimes small herds of wild horses and wild asses flashed as a vision on the horizon. In one place I observed a big colony of marmots. All over an area of several square miles, their mounds were scattered with the holes leading down to their runways below, the dwellings of the marmot. 
In and out among these mounds, the grayish-yellow or brown animals ran in all sizes up to half that of an average dog. They ran heavily, and the skin on their fat bodies moved as though it were too big for them. The marmots are splendid prospectors, always digging deep ditches, throwing out on the surface all the stones. In many places I saw mounds the marmots had made from copper ore, and farther north some from minerals containing wolfram and vanadium. Whenever the marmot is at the entrance of his hole, he sits up straight on his hind legs and looks like a bit of wood, a small stump, or a stone. As soon as he spies a rider in the distance, he watches him with great curiosity and begins whistling sharply. This curiosity of the marmots is taken advantage of by the hunters, who sneak up to their holes flourishing streamers of cloth on the tips of long poles. The whole attention of the small animals is concentrated on this small flag, and only the bullet that takes his life explains to him the reason for this previously unknown object. I saw a very exciting picture as I passed through a marmot colony near the Orkhan River. There were thousands of holes here, so that my Mongols had to use all their skill to keep the horses from breaking their legs in them. I noticed an eagle circling high overhead. All of a sudden he dropped like a stone to the top of a mound, where he sat motionless as a rock. The marmot in a few minutes ran out of his hole to a neighbor's doorway. The eagle calmly jumped down from the top, and with one wing closed the entrance to the hole. The rodent heard the noise, turned back, and rushed to the attack, trying to break through to his hole where he had evidently left his family. The struggle began. The eagle fought with one free wing, one leg, and his beak, but did not withdraw the bar to the entrance. The marmot jumped at the rapacious bird with great boldness, but soon fell from a blow on the head. Only then the eagle withdrew his wing, approached the marmot, finished him off, and with difficulty lifted him in his talons to carry him away to the mountains for a tasty luncheon. In the more barren places, with only occasional spears of grass in the plain, another species of rodent lives, called imuran, about the size of a squirrel. They have a coat the same color as the prairie, and, running about it like snakes, they collect the seeds that are blown across by the wind, and carry them down into their diminutive homes. The imuran has a truly faithful friend, the yellow lark of the prairie, with a brown back and head. When he sees the imuran running across the plain, he settles on his back, flaps his wings in balance, and rides well this swiftly galloping mount, who gaily flourishes his long shaggy tail. The lark during his ride skilfully and quickly catches the parasites living on the body of his friend, giving evidence of his enjoyment of his work with a short, agreeable song. The Mongols call the imuran the steed of the gay lark. The lark warns the imuran of the approach of eagles and hawks with three sharp whistles the moment he sees the aerial brigand, and takes refuge himself behind a stone or in a small ditch. After this signal, no imuran will stick his head out of his hole until the danger is past. Thus the gay lark and his steed live in kindly neighborliness. In other parts of Mongolia, where there was very rich grass, I saw another type of rodent, which I had previously come across in Urianhai. It is a gigantic black prairie rat with a short tail, and lives in colonies of from one to two hundred. He is interesting and unique as the most skilful farmer among the animals in his preparation of his winter supply of fodder. 
during the weeks when the grass is most succulent, he actually mows it down with swift jerky swings of his head, cutting about twenty or thirty stalks with his sharp long front teeth. Then he allows his grass to cure, and later puts up his prepared hay in a most scientific manner. First, he makes a mound about a foot high. Through this he pushes down into the ground four slanting stakes, converging toward the middle of the pile, and binds them close over the surface of the hay with the longest strands of grass, leaving the ends protruding enough for him to add another foot to the height of the pile, when he again binds the surface with more long strands, all this to keep his winter supply of food from blowing away over the prairie. This stock he always locates right at the door of his den, to avoid long winter hauls. The horses and camels are very fond of this small farmer's hay, because it is always made from the most nutritious grass. The haycocks are so strongly made that one can hardly kick them to pieces. Almost everywhere in Mongolia I met either single pairs or whole flocks of the grayish-yellow prairie partridges, salga, or partridge swallow, so called because they have long sharp tails resembling that of swallows, and because their flight also is a close copy of that of the swallow. These birds are very tame or fearless, allowing men to come within ten or fifteen paces of them, but when they do break, they go high and fly long distances without lighting, whistling all the time quite like swallows. Their general markings are light grey and yellow, though the males have pretty chocolate spots on the backs and wings, while their legs and feet are heavily feathered. My opportunity to make these observations came from travelling through unfrequented regions by the Urga, which, however, had its counterbalancing disadvantages. The Mongols carried me directly and swiftly toward my destination, receiving with great satisfaction the presents of Chinese dollars which I gave them. But after having made about five thousand miles on my Cossack saddle, that now lay behind me on the cart, all covered with dust like common merchandise, I rebelled against being racked and torn by the rough riding of the cart, as it was swung heedlessly over stones, hillocks, and ditches by the wild horses, with their equally wild riders, bounding and cracking and holding together only through its tenacity of purpose, in demonstrating the coziness and attractiveness of a good Mongol equipage. All my bones began to ache. Finally I groaned at every lunge, and at last I suffered a very sharp attack of ischias or sciatica in my wounded leg. At night I could neither sleep, lie down, nor sit with comfort, and spent the whole night pacing up and down the plain, listening to the loud snorings of the inhabitants of the yurta. At times I had to fight the two huge black dogs which attacked me. The following day I would endure the racking only until noon, and was then forced to give up and lie down. The pain was unbearable. I could not move my leg nor my back, and finally fell into a high fever. We were forced to stop and rest. I swallowed all my stock of aspirin and quinine, but without relief. Before me was a sleepless night about which I could not think without weakening fear. We had stopped in the yurta for guests by the side of a small monastery. My Mongols invited the Lama doctor to visit me, who gave me two very bitter powders, and assured me I should be able to continue in the morning. I soon felt a stimulated palpitation of the heart, after which the pain became even sharper. 
Again I spent the night without any sleep, but when the sun arose the pain ceased instantly, and, after an hour, I ordered them to saddle me a horse, as I was afraid to continue further in the cart. While the Mongols were catching the horses, there came to my tent Colonel N. N. Filipov, who told me that he denied all the accusations that he and his brother and Poletica were Bolsheviki, and that Bezrodnov allowed him to go to Van Kure to meet Baron Ungern, who was expected there. Only Filipov did not know that his Mongol guide was armed with a bomb, and that another Mongol had been sent on ahead with a letter to Baron Ungern. He did not know that Poletica and his brothers were shot at the same time in Zain Shabi. Filipov was in a hurry, and wanted to reach Van Kure that day. I left an hour after him. End of chapter.